What's up, Podcast Nation? It's your boy, the startup hype man himself, Raj Nation. And before we start this week's episode, I want to hit you with the latest dates on the Hype Man Roadshow speaking tour. I just got back from Denver, Colorado, where I delivered How Do Not Suck at Pitching Your Startup, the workshop and presentation to a lively, energetic, and awesome group of military veteran entrepreneurs and their spouses. Next up on the tour over the next few weeks, it's October 15th, right here in Chicago, Illinois, on the north side at the 2112 Incubator, and then October 17th, up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the Ann Arbor Spark Incubator, delivering How to Not Suck at Pitching Your Startup. I would love to see you there. Have you not attended before? It is a fantastic experience. You'll learn a lot. We'll get to know each other a little bit better, and we'll make some magic happen for your startup. Check out startuphypeman.com slash speaking for links to get tickets to any of these events, as well as future updates on speaking gigs and things going on in the startup world. All right, let's dive in now to this week's episode. On with the show. Back to Seattle, which is good news for my business, but bad news for me participating. Welcome, everybody, to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, a.k.a. The Raj Nation. I am your show's host and the founder and creative force behind Startup Hype Man, helping startups everywhere build their hype by creating a message that sings. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's about the mindset, processes, and strategies to help you build a badass company. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation to join our tribe at StartupHypeMan.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of this show, getting an email in your inbox every single week when we drop new episodes on Mondays. You'll also get my weekly thoughts, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your hype and create a raving fan base. All right, let's dive in now to this week's conversation of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome back to another episode, everybody. Today on the show, we have Alita Miranda Wolf. Alita is the co-founder and CEO of Ethos, a startup focused on providing diversity and inclusion into the conversation for companies to involve in their hiring practices. Alita, welcome to the show. Hi there. I'm excited to have you on. Our topic today is how do you grow from one to X, which is really about scaling at the end of the day, right? The X can be whatever multiple you want it to be, but it's about growth and scaling, which is something that you know most startups are focused on. So why is this important to you and why is this on your mind? So I built most of my career in venture capital and I was working in the early stages. So I spent a lot of time with companies that were going from idea phase to actually having a business. But for them to be sustainable, to really grow, they have to think about scaling for the future. So it became really top of mind because I worked so closely embedding in those companies, getting to know those leaders and seeing those challenges. And I ended up starting my business, Ethos, to help growing and grow huge companies achieve that scale through people based on those challenges. So it's something that I've been very close to. And I think it's something we don't think about in terms of people. 
we think about it in terms of strategy or revenue figures or even the markets we expand to. But when we think about scale, we have to think about how we scale ourselves as leaders, how we scale our teams, and how we use all of that culturally to scale our organizations. I like that you said that, achieve growth through people, because you're right. I think we often think of scale purely in terms of like, how much more software can be put out, how much more revenue, but people are what's behind it at the end of the day. So I'm excited to, to tackle that. Before we dive fully into that, I wanna know a little bit more about you as a person. So let's, let's think way back, or maybe not way back, into your memory bank. Can you think of a time growing up, like was, was people a consistent theme for you? Or is this something that you just started to think about recently? No, it's something that has really defined my relationships in my life. So to give you a sense, people always ask me that question, where did you grow up? And the answer really is nowhere. I moved 11 times when I was growing up. And every time we moved, it was a time to restart. And on top of that, I always struggled with things like bullying. I was very strange and intense as a child. I started studying the existentialist before I was 12. And I had a lot of ideas around things like philosophy and the arts and literature because my parents were decidedly not traditional parents. My mom never wanted to be a soccer mom. I never played on a soccer team, but she did homeschool me in art history as a supplement to my regular schooling. My mom is not from the U.S. She's a Cuban refugee who went to Spain, is somebody who grew up in a family of intellectuals, and so wouldn't let me read for the most part, things that weren't of quality in her mind. So I didn't read Dr. Seuss until I was 18. <laughs> and I was say, so, no underpants was, it, was in your uh, childhood. <laughs> no, it was not. And so I had these challenges in that I presented myself really differently. And I moved all the time, so I didn't form these strong bonds. And then on top of that, I had young parents who were the kind of parents who took me everywhere. So there are pictures of me in bars as a baby holding a bottle of Chinese beer. That was my life. And so there was never really this good fit or match. And what I had learned to do very quickly was read people. I could read people so that I could form a bond in a relationship quickly. When you change schools every year, you don't have a group. People don't know you. You have to reinvent those relationships. And so I would very quickly be able to understand what it was that motivated somebody, what they liked, what they didn't like. And I use that to actually build those relationships and build friendships. And so I became very interested in this. How do I understand people? Because it ultimately became a value when you don't have established ties in a setting like a school and you don't do a lot of the cool things like play soccer, you have to find other ways to be socially valuable. And that was something that was really on my mind because I was a people pleaser. So I could be the person that would solve problems for you because I could be a mirror. You would tell me something that was going on. I would listen to you. I would process it. I would say it back in a new way and we would form a bond. And so that really followed me throughout high school, through college, and then into my career. And I have said many times before that I've always been a people person and I've always been someone who believes in people, but it does come from this experience of knowing what it's like to be isolated and finding ways to get out of that isolation mode. I'm really curious to learn more about the sort of the philosophy side of things, right? Cause you said read, had to learn how to read people. And that's, that's sort of like a, by nature of the environment thing, changing schools all the time, being brought into different scenarios. But I think I would guess anyway, part of that skill is probably also learned from the literature you were consuming. So is there a specific 
philosopher you were philosophizer <laughs> philosopher you were drawn to in that reading growing up and any specific like principle that you think is particularly fascinating related to this concept of people it's so funny that you bring it up because I often mark a big transformation in my worldview and outlook as changing from one philosopher to another. So I went through a very broody, dark time, a lot younger than other people. I used to have a poster of Kurt Cobain's face on my wall, and I would just every morning say, if I had been there, I could have saved you, and I was probably like seven or eight. And when I say that I was a strange, intense child, I am not exaggerating. Yeah, so that's, that's seven or eight years old. I really, really loved Nirvana. Wow. So I, uh, my mom, to give you some context, is uh, somebody who got a PhD in French literature from Stanford, and I was always exposed to that kind of thinking. And so I knew who Sartre was when I was really young. Hell is other people is what people know him for. But true existentialism from maybe more of the pessimistic standpoint we are here and we suffer and die and that is it. And that is really, really, really basic. And there are gonna be people who've read his work listening to this, may be familiar with no exit saying you're completely destroying all of it. And I would probably be one of those people, but for the sake of time, sure. <laughs> that idea. And then really in the beginning of high school, I started to become really fascinated with Camus and Camusian existentialism. So I read A Happy Death, The Stranger, The Plague, The Fall, and I was understanding that this idea of existentialism appealed to me, this idea that there is suffering in the world and there are challenges in the world and there is uncertainty and ambiguity. But Camusian existentialism is fundamentally more positive. So it believes that we go forth and we deal with all of these challenges and all this suffering and all of this bleakness and we triumph over it in our own ways. It doesn't eliminate it. We don't get rid of it. But there is beauty in humanity. There is connectedness. There is this sort of sense that we can make it through if we can relate to one another and get out of this mode of isolation. And so that started to change my worldview. And then, of course, recently, I've been very much into Buddhist philosophy. So Shantideva and the original teachings of Theravada Buddhism, which has gotten me to the most positive form of existentialism, which is, you know, life is pain, but you can overcome suffering through a variety of practices and self-awareness. Yeah, as you were talking about that, I immediately was thinking, okay, that's, that's a, a Buddhist philosophy, which is essentially that we're on a path of suffering and we're just essentially trying to like reduce the amount of suffering, but it's not going to go away. Well, I think about Buddhism in this term, and this is re really how I got into the teachings and the learnings more. So I was uh, meeting with Yal Shai, who is a teacher and runs the largest meditation center in the U.S., NYU's meditation center. And she was talking about this parable from the Buddha, which is you get shot with an arrow, and that is life. Everyone is shot with an arrow. But you have a choice on whether you're shot with a second arrow, because that second arrow, you shot yourself. Pain is inevitable. We will always experience pain. That is not in our control. But suffering is in our control. We can eliminate suffering by realizing that there's no separate self, that we are all interconnected. We can eliminate suffering by freeing ourselves of attachments, attachments to ideas, to people. This does not mean to be cold or distant. You can be absolutely compassionate and empathetic, and that's what metta is in Buddhism, loving kindness but you are not attached to things because you understand that everything passes and changes. 
And so because of that, you can control your reactions to suffering in an environment that you can't control. It's all about inward control versus outward control. That's, that's, I really like that concept. Um, do you see, you know, that there's a lot of ancient texts you've, you've mentioned, and you actually mentioned a couple more of the more contemporary teachings. I, I, I'm going to venture to say at the time of Descartes and Nietzsche and Socrates and Buddha at their respective times, they weren't thinking of themselves as, oh, I'm going to be this world-renowned philosopher that everyone's going to study someday. Is there anyone modern day who you look at and you say, that's the person we're going to be studying in a hundred years or in a thousand years, if the planet still exists? (laughs) That's a really interesting concept. I don't know if Thomas Nagel counts because I feel like he's already a famous philosopher, but he really changed my perspective. I took a course at the University of Chicago when I was still a student uh, called Non-Human Life, Theories of Non-Human Life. So what does it mean to be alive and not human? And Thomas Nagel wrote a really famous uh, essay on what it is to be a bat and imagining what it is to be a bat. And I think his work has been really just interesting generally in conceiving of ourselves outside of the human mind and understanding the limits of the human mind for interpretation. I also think that if we look into the future, a lot of the philosophers that will be remembered actually double as neuroscientists. And so when I think about who are going to be the great minds we study as philosophers, I do think of folks like Richard Davidson, who wrote The Emotional Life of Your Brain and did groundbreaking work on how emotions actually work in in the brain. And what's really interesting is if you look at a lot of neuroscience, and I do for my work all the time, they are often referring to William James, who was a philosopher and a psychologist in the 1800s, and using that as a basis for some of their neurological findings. So I think that there's going to be a lot more in that regard. The other thing that I would just say is Donna Haraway, Cyborg Manifesto, She is the philosopher on technology to know. And then finally, Kevin Kelly, who was the founder of Wired magazine and a technologist in himself. I really do consider him to be a philosopher. If you read The Inevitable, which is about the 13 technological processes that will shape our world, I believe that's straight philosophy. 13, chapter 13 is on questioning, and it's a theory of questioning that I think that we should all know in a technologized world, one where AI underlies everything we do as a kind of different intelligence. And I think in a hundred years, we'll be looking at that. I really do. For everyone listening, you should probably rewind to the last 90 seconds, grab a notebook and write down all the philosophers and texts that she just mentioned. Uh, I know I'm going to start diving into some of those because I find this stuff very interesting. So People seems to be the common theme, and, if, and not just like social interactions, but thinking about existence and how we operate individually and with one another. How does getting into venture capital or angel investing come into your world? Because you spent a lot of time with Hyde Park Angels, which for those who don't know, is one of, if not the prominent angel investment group in the Chicagoland area. So how does that come about and what do you end up doing for them? Sure. So, and I'm proud to say that Hyde Park Angels, even though I'm no longer with them, is actually the most active investor in the Midwest period, not even angel groups, venture funds too. That was part of the work that I did there, part of the great leadership under Pete Wilkins, who was the managing director. I came on board as the director of Platform, and while I was at Hyde Park Angels, I managed our investors, our partners, everything to do with our brand and our portfolio company growth. 
I also did all of our work around organizational development and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about the fact that we were trying to be truly value-add VC. We didn't start as the preeminent investor in the Midwest at all. A lot of people still have that conception. We've been around 10 years. We've been in this spot for two, right? Big changes happened. The changes happened because when Pete came into the organization, he said, our power is people. We have access to all of these angels that want to get way more involved in our portfolio companies than a traditional limited partner would in a fund. And we can make that happen. It was my job to make that happen. So that meant engaging with the community, but it also meant engaging with our investors and really shaping who those investors were. We decided to really shape a people-first approach to investing, to go back to that people concept. That was the framing that I came up with when I built our messaging plan. And the idea was that we'd only bring in folks who had started, scaled, and sold their own companies or who had headed up their own companies. Because to truly add value to our portfolio companies, we needed to do more than add capital. We needed to actually add human capital. And so we went out and found these people who were scaling their own companies, who were essentially, the way I like to say it, in 10 years, who our founders wanted to be. They had had the hard lessons. They had gone through the growing pains. They knew what it took to get there. They were the folks who had gone from one to X. And so we had to find those folks. We had to teach them to be investors because most of them have spent their lives being operators, not investors. They're different competencies. There are different modes of being. And then we had to match them to our companies. And that was all me. So we were a very lean team, five people at the end. For a long time, we were just three. I managed everything that was not deals. And my colleague, Michael, was our principal and managed all deals. And then obviously, Pete managed our strategy for the organization. So that was really my role. How I got there is extremely circuitous. And I won't bore you with a long path. I'll try to do it in three bullet points. So when I was in college, I started at the University of Chicago when I was 16. It was my place. There is no question. When you wait, find- Wait, wait, started at 16. Yes. So the non-traditional upbringing continues, not just <laughs> starting at college period, but University of Chicago, one of the top universities in the country, you started at the age of 16. Fun facts, I wrote one of my admissions essays on why I felt Ferris Bueller should have gone to school. <laughs> I think that that is a great sum up of why that was the place where I felt happiest and most comfortable in my life. That's amazing. <laughs> so uh, the University of Chicago was a huge deal for me. I met my husband and my two best friends waiting in line to move into my dorm. So it was my place. And while I was there, I was very much trying to figure out what I was going to do to support myself because I wanted to study what I wanted to study. I did English, I did law letters in society, and I did romance languages. None of those were practical. And I was constantly besieged by the fear that I would not be able to make a living. Because you have to understand, with the upbringing that I had and the traditions in my family, work was not about thriving at all. It was about survival. Paycheck, take care of your care network, period. And none of the things I was doing were going to allow for that to happen. So I needed to work. And so that's bullet point one. I worked full time the entire time I was in school. And I tried as many jobs as possible so that I could understand what it was that I liked to do. Bullet point two. A, before we go to bullet point two, can we, I just want to comment on what you said there with the, in your family, it was surviving as opposed to thriving. Because I think that's something that, a lot of entrepreneurs, not just entrepreneurs, literally like anyone, um, if you're 
you know, more or less millennial-ish or on the fringes of the millennial time frame, your parents' generation was mostly focused on surviving in the sense of make enough to provide for family, uh, provide for yourself, put your kids through school, and so forth. And I think that's where a lot of the, you know, the dissonance and the friction happens now is because, honestly, economies have grown. Technology has allowed for a lot more to be done to where you, I mean, you have a choice now. You don't have to just survive. You can survive, but there is a choice to thrive if you want to assume that role. And I think that's different than the way, you know, most of our parents were brought up, which is where we see a lot of like people saying, oh, I want to go this path. My family doesn't understand because they were never afforded that opportunity. So they look at anything that is, it's almost like they look at anything that is not in the name of surviving and taking care of the immediate network as like you're turning your back or you're, or it's like a slap in the face to what we had to go through. Right. So I would say there's another wrinkle in that too. I think that's a fair characterization, but I also know from my experiences in the DEI world, when you come from an underrepresented group, especially an immigrant group, it's even more pressing that you just make it. And so I remember when I was 16 and my family thought what an entrepreneur was, was a word for someone who was unemployed, (laughs) period. That's what it was. I mean, you should have heard my grandmother trying to understand what I did in venture capital. She was like, are are you a businesswoman? I don't understand. It just, there was no conception, period. Which I will say, to be fair, with the amount of entrepreneurs that exist, there are a lot of entrepreneur actually does mean unemployed. (laughs) Fair. But when I think about my husband who grew up in Silicon Valley, whose father was an entrepreneur, totally different story. When I met him, his goal was to figure out how he would start his own company sooner rather than later. And his father had already done it twice. And he looked like founders, right? My husband is a Silicon Valley kid who is awesome at math and science. He's actually a synthetic biologist. He is Caucasian, young, even wears the t-shirts, right? So that was a much easier path too, because when he looked around, I mean, Sam's the hoodie. There's not that much difference in how he looks and Mark Zuckerberg. Right. right? But there is a lot of difference between how I look and Mark Zuckerberg. So that was a, an inherent challenge. And I was looking for where are there people like me who are making it? And so I thought the answer was law. And that's what I tried to pursue during college. And I got really intense about it. I double major law. I started the undergraduate law review. I was on the law school law review. I did research for two different law professors. I had legal internships at the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, as well as at Perkins Coie. I was really pursuing this. I took my LSAT two years early. And the big inflection point for me was I was crossing the street to meet my mom on the other side of the road in Hyde Park, and I got hit by a car. Back with more Discover Your Inner Awesome in just a moment. But first, are you an early stage startup? If so, you're probably running on the messaging treadmill where you're trying to figure out how to pitch your company, how to tell the story, how to communicate, market, and sell this thing that you've built. But for every step you take forward, you get pulled back one just like you're on a treadmill because you're either too in the weeds, too technical, or your attention is pulled in too many different directions. Oh, and on top of that, 
you're facing the everyday mental crisis of being an entrepreneur where you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I should have listened to my family and just gotten that safe and secure six-figure job. Guess what? It's time to get off the treadmill. Introducing Hype Man Academy, my brand new affordable equity-free virtual accelerator designed to build a marketing playbook for your startup so you can confidently pitch investors with a clear and compelling message and go out and market and sell to get your first 10 or 20 or 30 customers. Hype Man Academy is a weekly live online workshop where you work alongside your fellow founders, support and help one another, and get one-on-one access with me through virtual office hours. For information on joining the next cohort, visit startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. That's startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. Fill out an application and let's discuss. Back now to our regularly scheduled programming. And I flipped over the car twice. I had reconstructive surgery. It was a very serious accident. Very serious accident. Dad of winter. And I was in the hospital and my surgeon said, three months. Three months you have to take from school. And like I said, this is the place that I am happiest. And I said, no way. I'm going back in five days because that's when I won't miss enough assignments that it will impact my GPA. So I went back. And I did a lot of reflection, and it was a painful recovery. I still have a lot of residual injuries from that accident five years ago. But going through that, I asked myself this question. If I had gone back to my legal internship after five days, would I have actually done it? Or would I have taken the three months? And I would have taken the three months. So I needed a new environment. And that led me to going to work at a startup when 1871 first opened, actually starting the entrepreneurship organization at the University of Chicago, and finally becoming essentially an intern at Hyde Park Angels. They had a junior associate program where you could work on deals, and you could support associates who were working on those deals. I ended up on the consumer products and services team. We had different leadership then, but my colleague Michael was still there, and he said, hey, you can just be an associate. You don't have to be a junior associate. (laughs) You can actually do the work. And so I started doing diligence then and working on the deal side. I did that for a year left to go essentially be a management consultant. And while I was there, I just liked the work and didn't like the environment. High Park Angels now had Pete as a new leader, came back to me, said, do you have any friends who would be interested in joining in this very vague role as we start to reshape the organization? And that big role ended up being mine. And that's how I ended up in venture capital. That's a, you're right. It is a circuitous path, but I do like how you're able to summarize that. Now, Present day, your co-founder of Ethos, which you've been running, I'd say formally since maybe first quarter of this year of 2018. Uh, As you say, in your own words, you help, you grow the teams that fuel rocket ship companies. So now let's really dig into this topic question for today, which is the idea of, of growth from one to X. So a good starting point, I think would be, let's first define what we mean by that. So when you think of the idea of growth from one to X, is it a, a standard principle that one equals this and X equals this, or is it more nebulous? So I think that depending on who you ask, you're going to get more concrete numbers, but I just don't believe in that because of the stage of companies I'm exposed to and what I see them do. So when I think about zero to one, that is nothing to something. When I think about one to X, I think you have something. You have a business that is built. It is not Forming, it is formed. It may go through pivots and changes, but it is fully out of the idea phase. And now we have to make it work. 
and the X is any kind of scale. Obviously, you want the kind of scale that you put in your vision, right? If you want to disrupt X market in X way, then that should be your X. But regardless, when I think of one, you have something and you are going to become whole now and actually achieve your vision, whatever you have set that vision as. I like that uh, definition or that summary. Now, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, most people, most entrepreneurs and companies, when they think about growth and scale and getting from one to X, they think about how do we increase our annual revenue? Uh, How do we get more users on our platform, et cetera. Why do you think, and I say that because your view is let's look at the people side of things. Why do you think we have a tendency to default to the, the numbers, the users, the, the quantifiable things like that? I think there are a few reasons. I think one, we have a tendency to start with what as opposed to why. And when you start with what, you look for things that are very tangible. And things like revenue numbers are very tangible. You can see them go bank and take out cash and pile it up and see it. And so it's very contained. It's not nebulous. Your why is bigger. If you think about what Disney's vision is, it's to make people happy. That is a scary idea if you're trying to sell other people on this, right? So for one, we start with the what. We start with the tactical. We start with what's easy to see and understand. I think the other challenge that we face in not looking at people is just the way that we've been triggered to operate specifically within technology, which is product first, sales second, people third. If you even look at how teams hire, you spend all of your time finding engineers or technical co-founders if you are not building that product. Once the product is built, you need to go sell it so you can keep making the product and actually get to whatever goal you've set. And then you start thinking about, okay, how do we build a culture? How do we bring on HR? HR is always the last hire, honestly. I used to say it was marketing, but I don't think so. I think it's HR based on the companies that I've seen. The problem with that thinking is who builds your product and who makes your sales, right? So we think about the finite thing. And I think that really what's underlying that is people are hard. They're hard to predict. They don't always do what you think they will do. They're inconsistent. They may be emotional. It's hard to communicate with them. You build a product, things can break. Things can go wrong. There can be difficult problems to solve. It's easier, though, to crack a product or to crack a sales pipeline than it is to crack a person. And the question of whether you can ever really know someone fully does come up when you're running a company. And that company is yours and you're letting someone else into it who will now shape what that company looks like too. So it's just messier and harder and it's harder to see. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we end up not privileging people. And the last thing I'll say is in technology, move fast and break things is the credo. And that just doesn't work with people. It just doesn't. You move fast and you break things, what you're breaking is a person. And that doesn't feel good. It feels good if you break your website because it needs to be better. But breaking down a person isn't going to necessarily have the outcome that you want. We, ha- we tend to start with the what because it's tangible and ignore the why. And these are interesting points you bring up because, I mean, you're probably the 
the millionth person to say, stop focusing on the what and focus on the why. But we still, so many founders, so many companies know that that advice is out there, but they still don't do it. And I like how you back that up by saying, because the what, the, the what you can actually grasp, the why is more of the intangible and, and how do you, you know, build around making people happy versus building around achieving $3 million in annual recurring revenue. There's an actual process you can pretty much follow step by step to get there. So if we were to be a company that says, okay, I want to lead with the why. I want to make sure that I am focusing not just on product, but on people. What do I need to do as step one, maybe steps one, two, and three? So I'll put it in a model for you. You start with the individual, you move on to the team, you move on to the organization. This may not sound radical to you, but at least in the circles that I play in, it's really radical because usually you start from the organization, move down to the team, and then work your way down to the individual. When we're thinking about leaders, leadership development is very important. If you don't start with yourself as a leader, you can't actually get to the team and organization level because the CEO of a company, the founders of a company, their personalities are the culture. They are. And then it changes over time as you add people in, as the company grows. But when it's first forming, this is what happens. Every decision that you make is watched and copied. So if you're crazy and running around as a CEO, so is your entire company. If you're non-confrontational and unwilling to provide feedback, so is your entire company. So step one is you've got to do the work on yourself to say, where are my gaps? You should also be looking at strengths. So one thing that I tell founders to do when they want to scale is actually look at what they do every day. Because as founders, and I run into this myself running my own company, we think about the idea, we're in love with the idea, and we do everything in service of the idea, but maybe not in service of our strengths or what we want to be doing. So I ask the question, what problem can you uniquely solve that no one else is solving at your company? And then, does it give you purpose and are you truly good at it? And your role description needs to change. Even though you're the CEO or the founder, it needs to change. And then you need to look at all the things that you can't do. And you need to get really, really clear on them. And there are going to be some of those things that you need to turn into strengths. And there are going to be some of those things that you're going to need to hire for and give up control on. And that's a real say, challenge. Would you say on that individual aspect then that overcoming ego is a big part of this equation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to be able to overcome your own ego because you have to be able to acknowledge that your ideas are not the best, that other people can do things better than you, and you have to celebrate them for that, even if it is your company. And you have to be willing to give up some of your company to other people. And that's very hard to do because it's very personal to run that company. And in fact, that's why you see so many founders get replaced as CEOs. And, I th and it's... To be honest, from what I've seen and experienced with different companies I've talked to and worked with personally, it's not even just like, like, oh, my idea needs to be heard. Like that, that I think is even like a step further. I've even seen cases of, well, I need to have this title because only when I have that title do I have like merit or importance in this organization. And to be honest, and like realistically, when it's just the founders, you can be a chief, whatever. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. So 
I always go back to why do you do what you do? And a lot of founders just don't even sit down to think about it. And I've seen really exceptional founders choose to step down or step into a different role than the one that they have because they understand it. You see this with some really excellent CTOs. They started out as a CEO, but why they do what they do might be because they want to support people and unlock the potential in them by making automation a bigger part of their lives so they can do the things that they actually want to do with their time. And they can do that much more tangibly and much more uniquely to their skill set as a CTO than a CEO. So I do work on soft skills and hard skills. And I am somebody who has grown up in strategy and I spend a lot of time on strategy. Even when I'm dealing with people, every single one of my clients, we make a one-page strategy plan for the business before we do anything. I believe in that. But when we're thinking about step one, step one is knowing yourself. And knowing what you can do, what you're willing to do, what you're wanting to do, and then what you need to give up so that you can bring other people in. And that's when you move on to the team stage. That reminds me, I'll just share a quick story. Um, Just a personal example, not from a company setting, actually, even before I was ever in the working world. When I was in high school, uh, you know, the big thing I focused on was running track. And my senior year, uh, go leading up, like I was on one of the better teams in the state. Um, and the specific relay team that I was on was one of the top five relay teams in the state. And a few weeks before the state meet, I actually sustained like a stress fracture in my foot. Now I was still able to run on it. It was just like, I could, once the race ended, I was like, I got to like put my foot in ice and then I can't really walk for like a day. (laughs) And the day of the state meet finals, I, you know, we had someone who could replace me, um, who was just as fast. And I I was like, listen, I need you to warm up with us because if I don't feel like I can go, I don't want to be the reason that we don't place, you know, top four, top five in the state. Now, ultimately after warming up, I was like, okay, I think I can do this. And I ran and didn't hurt. And I ran, you know, as good as I could. And the second I handed off the baton is when I felt like my foot exploded. But in my head, I was thinking, I am, this is all I've worked for, for the last four years, but I've also worked to be part of this team. And if I feel like I can't go, I, I have to give this up to, so our team accomplishes what we want. So that's, that's just a personal thing that I can relate to in what you said. So now let's transition from individual to team in the model of individual team organization. So once you go from the individual to the team, that's who do you surround yourself with? And we're talking about founders here in the C-suite who fill in your gaps. You have to be able to admit that you're not a good salesperson or you're not a good strategist or you don't have the relationships that you need to build channel partnerships or that you aren't the culture guru that you thought you were. You have to be able to see very clearly what you are not and what you are not willing to invest the time in to do or that investment of time wouldn't produce the same result as just bringing somebody else in. And then you build that team. It's extremely crucial that when you build that team, you're looking at competencies and shared values. When I talk about culture, the definition that I use is that a group of people come together to find a good way of life that they all agree on. Can you repeat that? That people come together as a group to find a good way of life together. And then... Based on that idea, 
they develop activities, behaviors, and institutions to live that good life. And the outcome is that individuals flourish. So you have to build a team that aligns to that good way of life, that can translate that into action, and that will invest in others so they may flourish and will allow themselves to flourish. So you've got to look at your board docs and your strategic plans and your business plans and your core metrics and figure out, okay, what are the gaps here? I have to get to this goal in order to scale. What are the things that need to be done to get here? How does that look in terms of a role? And then build a true scorecard where you interview people and measure them based on whether they have those competencies. But your core values, that blueprint for your culture has to be part of the scorecard too. And the other thing that I always say is it is so hard to lead a company alone. Who's going to be a partner? Who is someone you want to share your life with? Who can you go to? I have a client where the chief people officer there says that the person in her life who is the best listener she knows is her CEO. And when you see them together, you can see that that is a partnership. That's the aspiration. That's what a really good team does for us. We have to be able to trust the people we're around because we believe the same things and we're supporting each other. Doesn't even mean that you have to like each other, but you have to trust each other. And so you've got to build that team around you, around your gaps, around your values. And then you can move to the organization. And that's when you start thinking about how you actually scale culture from what has developed organically around your personality and the idiosyncratic habits that formed when you first brought people in and things were just coming together. Because here's the thing, a company under 30 employees behaves like a family. And there's a lot of data and evidence that shows this. You are a family at this stage. 30 to 150, you're a small organization, but you still operate like a community. Communities go up to 150 people. After 150 people, though, we're not a community anymore. We can't remember each other. We don't all know each other. If you even go back to how we formed clans and tribes, originally it was 150 or less. After that point, you need to put structures in place to actually do things like cross-collaborate so that you can innovate, right? Because if we think about what innovation is, it's taking an idea from here and an idea from here and putting them together. And the only way that you do that is if you put people in the room who don't normally talk to each other and who think differently from one another. Similarly, you need codes for people to live by because it's not going to be easy for them to pick up on the culture you want them to live, those activities, behaviors, institutions, unless they're somewhat codified, clearly communicated, and they feel ownership in them. And that's when you start doing all of the structural stuff, all of the process stuff around people and culture. Our problem, and I talk about this in diversity, equity, and inclusion all the time, but it's true for culture. Our problem is that when we think about scaling culture, we think about recruitment, who do we hire, and we think about protection. How do we protect our employees and ourselves from liability, sexual harassment training, misconduct training, compliance? But we're not thinking about things like retention and promotion. And those are the places we need to structure the most because that's what keeps people feeling like they're part of a community, like they can trust others, and ultimately that's what builds a healthy culture. And a healthy culture is just made up of three components, safety, vulnerability, and purpose. And interestingly enough, we obsess over customer retention, but not enough over employee retention. 
it's crazy expensive and you don't have good customer retention if you don't have good employer retention. There's a great, uh, there's a great book on that called the happy employee that has a lot of data that supports it. But we've got to think about retention for a lot of reasons. A uh, few things that I'll just say on that in technology, the retention rate is extremely low. So in top 10 technology companies, it, an average tenure of one to two years. In software as a sector industry, it's 22% churn quarter over quarter. We're at unemployment nationally under 4%, but it's actually under 2% in technology. So there are way fewer people available to work in our companies. They have way more options of where to go, and they have incentives to leave. Because the other thing that's really important to remember is when you leave a job after two years, your salary increases. Most companies are not increasing comp much higher than the rate of inflation. So you could work at a tech company for five years and essentially make the same salary, even if you're getting a raise every year. And if you're smart and you don't care about the people that you work with and you're not getting what you need, you'll go to the place that'll pay you more. I'm smiling because this is a conversation uh, I've had so many times with one of my friends over the years, which is like, why is it that the only way you can make more money is if you threaten to leave your, is if you leave the company or threaten to leave them, they match your salary of wherever else was going to pay you. So this, I love the model, individual team organization. Can you real quick just, just say again the, the numbers you put around it? So it was like zero to 30 is family. And how did that break out? So under 30 employees, you're dealing with a family and things are going to operate like they would in your family. So it tends to be a lot closer knit. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing, can be more emotional, can be more explosive, a lot more informal, much more organic. 30 to 150, you're really looking at a community. And in that community, you're going to have more structure, more process, more rules, but probably still relatively informal. And it'll be, again, things like shared values or shared interests that keep you together. After 150, you really are an organization. It doesn't feel like a community because this is the point at which you don't know everybody within the organization. We don't have the mental space to know more than 150 people closely in our minds. Before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know where they can find you, find Ethos, learn more about the company and get in touch with you? Absolutely. So you can always find me on Twitter, Alita MW, and Ethos as well. It's just at Ethos Talent. Both are on LinkedIn under our respective names. I'm super easy to find because my name is Lita Miranda Wolf and nobody else has it. So I'm like 22 pages of search results. And that's well, Alita with an A for everyone listening. Yes, Alita with an A. And then finally, go to ethostalent.com and sign up for our newsletter. That is the best way to find us and get information about us. We'll link all that up in the show notes for this episode. So to wrap up, we'll each give our answer to today's question. The question today was, how do you grow from one to X? I love everything that you shared. And what it made me think of was an article I read recently, which was actually about content marketing. And the, the, basics, the basis of the article was, you should treat content marketing like you treat software. Like a lot of people will create a piece of content and then never touch it again. But then the software they put out, they're constantly iterating and improving on. And you could do the same thing with your content, put it up, see what gets good feedback, modify, put it up, you know, repost it again. Um, so it's always a living document or whatever. I think we can do the same thing now with people instead of just having, okay, this is what we're doing for hiring. This is the type of person we're looking for. This is the organization we're building. Treat the way you 
treat people as like a living document, more or less, that you're constantly looking at, reflecting on, and improving. Alita, how do you grow from one to X? That is my own question. So it is certainly a big question. I think that there are a lot of things that you need to do, but we don't spend enough time on people. So lead with people, make every decision with this in mind. Am I living up to the good way of life that we all design together? Am I translating that into repeatable actions and behaviors that ultimately let people flourish? And am I doing that in such a way that it works at the individual level, at the team level, and at the organizational level? Alita Miranda Wolf, thank you for joining the show today. Thanks so much for having me. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the absolute best compliment you can give is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people can discover their inner awesome. And if you want to extend that compliment further, while you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or the various other networks in which you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as access to the over 100-episode archive, visit the podcast official site, www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. And remember, for tips, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your company's hype with a message that sings, visit StartupHypeMan.com. Season 10's theme song is from Sir the Baptist. The song is called Dance with the Devil. It is off his album Saint or Sinner, which you can grab on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and anywhere else digital music is distributed. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to this week's guest for joining us. I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. This is dance with the devil go. Tell me what you gonna do. This is dance with the devil go. And if you can't get a loose, then this is dance with the devil.